the Wednesday edition. Jeff, take it away. Good afternoon. Thank you, Drew. And good afternoon to Joe Works and Chase Byers. Hey, Jeff. Hey, guys. We are in Acts 20 today. Is that right? That's correct. We got yes, about sir. halfway through it last time. So just real quick in the book of Acts, first half of the book of Acts, largely about Peter's work and focused on a time period when church is made up primarily of Jews. We get to uh, Acts chapter 9. Of course, we are introduced to Saul, who is, well, we're introduced to Saul back at the end of chapter 7, but he is persecuting the church in Acts chapter 9. He sees the Lord. He becomes a believer. Um, he it becomes now kind of the focal point of the rest of the book of Acts as he goes about preaching the gospel amongst Gentiles. He and Barnabas make a trip in chapters 13 and 14 up into what would be south-central Turkey today. And we think of the cities, of, and, and they go to Cyprus also. Uh, but we think of the cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, where they appointed elders in every church. There's a controversy about circumcision that arises. These Gentiles that are being converted, do they have to keep the law of Moses? Do they have to circumcise their sons? That gets addressed in Jerusalem, and a letter is sent out disavowing the people who had gone from Jerusalem, telling these other people that if the Gentiles are converted, they have to keep the law of Moses. Paul makes a, another trip, this time with Silas, in Acts chapter 16, and that trip continues through Acts chapter 18 and verse 22. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 23, Paul begins a third trip. And we are in that trip now. And he is headed home after having left Troas. Uh, actually, after having left um, Philippi. Well, actually, he'd gone all the way to Macedonia and Achaia. And then he'd come back through Philippi and Troas. And he's on his way home down the east coast of the Aegean Sea, and we get to verse 17. Uh, Joe, why don't you pick it up there? So verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. I actually How think that a couple of weeks ago we got, we kind of talked a little bit about this first part. We talked about uh, faith toward um, uh, re repentance toward God and then faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about some of those things. We talked about Paul's example is there anything we need to go back to in that section at this point? I don't think so. But yeah, we, we, we had touched on this text, but we had not really uh, gotten into uh, Paul's address to the elders in, in very much detail. So he's talking with the elders of the church in Ephesus. He's meeting them in the city of Miletus, which is uh, just south of Ephesus. And um, if I remember right, uh, well, I'm trying to remember the distance. I don't remember the distance off the top of my head. But anyway, he didn't want to spend time because he is in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem. And so he's talking here with the elders of the church, and he's going to say some very pertinent things to them. Chase, why don't you pick it up uh, where Joe left off? Verse 22, and now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course. And the, ministry, and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus 
to testify to the gospel of God's grace. We may have gotten that far because we did talk about the idea that Paul knew he was going to be in danger when he got to Jerusalem and he was going anyway. Verse 20, verse 25. And now behold, I know that you all among whom I went about preaching the kingdom shall see my face no more. That's kind of interesting because he does see them again. Um, well, now wait a minute. Yes. Okay, I'm suddenly yeah, going blank. He's, he's going he's to go back in the third in his third preaching trip. He'll see him again, right? Or sorry, we are in the third preaching we trip. Are in My the mind's going blank as trip. well. Sorry. Yeah. Help yeah. us, Joe. We're drowning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I think at, at this point where he's going to head on to Jerusalem, be arrested, and then he'll go to Caesarea and to Rome. Then, so he won't. So far as we know, he doesn't visit these places unless it's between his first and second imprisonment. We, and and that, okay. that's in, when he writes to Timothy, he says, I left you in, in Ephesus, yes. which I think we many of us would argue that he does make a trip back to Ephesus in between his first and second Roman imprisonment. Um, so the, the, the only observation I was going to make, there are times when Paul says things about his plans and his intentions He's writing by inspiration. He's teaching the Word of God, but apparently the Spirit of God lets him express his uh, his plans, whether they're going to be actually what's going to come true or not. Remember, he says to the saints in Rome that he wants to come see them when he's on his way to Spain. Well, he does end up seeing them, but not on his way to Spain. Um, so, but, but I think I think maybe we have that kind of thing here. What do you think? Quick note: It's actually Tim. It's actually Titus that Paul says, "I left you in Crete." It's in First Timothy. He says, "I urge you, when I went to Macedonia, to remain in Ephesus." That's so right. That you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrines. So I don't. I don't know if he left him in Ephesus and was in it. I don't know if we know that from First Timothy, but I, I still agree with you that there's probably some yeah. some trip he made in between. So, anyways, oh, verse twenty six of Acts twenty. Wherefore I testify unto you this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. Um, for I shrink not from declaring unto you the whole counsel of God. I want to sit on that just for a second. You, you two, and I, we preach the gospel. On the one hand, it's an easy thing to do. It's the word of God. We're not preaching our opinion. On the other hand, it's an awesome responsibility. Um, Paul says, I am free from the blood of all men. I preach the whole counsel. I didn't withhold anything. If, if, if I shrink from preaching everything that people need to hear because it's unpopular, because they don't want to hear it, they're not going to like it. Mm. Does that mean I'm guilty of the blood of people? It would seem so. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, is this not exactly what was the expectation um, for God's prophets? I mean, in Ezekiel chapter 18, God describes that same thing, uh, that Blood will be on there. Is it, sorry, it's, I always get it's either Ezekiel eighteen or Ezekiel twenty. I always 18, get those two chapters 18, mixed up. 18. Thank you. Um, but anyways, it's a similar point to the prophets even then that if, if I if I don't tell you about the wrath to come, um, then it's going to come back on me as well. And you know, there, I've known of situations where a congregation, maybe elders in a congregation, would tell a preacher, "We don't want you to preach on certain things." Um, because it was controversial or they didn't want to hear it or they knew they disagreed with him. 
as a preacher of the gospel, you have to feel free and you have to be free to preach what, what you need to say, to preach God's word. Um, I guess that's all I'll say about that, unless you want to add something else there. Verse 27, Joe, why don't you pick this up in our verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So um, he is setting an example for them. Uh, he preached the whole counsel of God. He warned they need to do the same thing. Um, this, I, this picture of, of a flock in verse 28, feeding the flock and wolves coming in, it's a picture that if you lived in an agrarian society where you saw uh, flocks of sheep and there were men out there watching over those sheep and trying to make sure that the sheep didn't fall victim, didn't become prey for wolves or coyotes or whatever, uh, I think this would carry a lot of weight. This is the responsibility these overseers have. Uh, they're to watch over the flock, they're to feed the flock, which is to teach them God's word, um, and they're to watch out for wolves that would lead them astray. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if I could go back to that earlier text just a minute, I, I, I'm curious if you guys see a play on words or a significance. Um, in verse 22, he says, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. And then in verse 23, he talks about chains and tribulations awaiting him. You know, he's bound. Chains are awaiting him. He it, when, when he when he arrives in Jerusalem, he's going to be bound, but he's already bound. I, I just find that kind of intriguing that uh, he is uh, what is driving him is something greater than what's going to physically happen to him. Is, mm -hmm. is that is that a legitimate thought there? Uh, I think so. I think so. That's a nice contrast. So. It's, it kind of reminds and, me and of so, six. You're going to be a slave of one thing or the other. You're going to be a slave of righteousness or you're going to be a slave of sin. You're going to be bound by, by right. God or you're going to be bound by something else. Yeah, yeah. If you're ashamed of me or if you confess me when Jesus talks, Matthew 10. Yeah, so then in this text, as he's warning these, uh, and, and maybe we should touch on, he calls them, or Luke calls them elders in verse 17, but then he identifies them differently in verse 28. Uh, should we make something out of all of these names that, that they're called? We should talk about that just a little bit. So, so here they are, they are identified as the elders of the church at Ephesus in verse 17. They've been made overseers, or some Bibles might say uh, bishops. And, and the, wor the word in Greek is episcopus. And if you can just imagine the word episcopus and drop the E, so you got episcopus. And then the OS at the end is just an ending. Drop that off and you got Piscop. And then you change the P to a B and you've got Biscop. And then let it be an H instead of a K and you've got Bishop. And that is not, that, that's actually that's actually where the word comes from. Bishop is just. I say, you can do that with a lot of words. 
Yeah, you, yeah. If you just change each letter one at a time, you can turn any letter into any word. Yeah. Uh, bicycle actually comes from fudge, and here's how you do it. <laughs> no, but that actually is where the word bishop comes from. <laughs> I think this is helpful to point out, though, guys, because I mean, this is a this is a source of confusion uh, confusion in the religious world. I mean, all the way from Catholics, all the way to I have some Mormon friends that I just made. And, you know, they're younger than I am. I, I'm not old. I'm young. And one guy's 19 years old calling himself an elder. And when we got into these distinctions, he said, well, you have to understand that there's a difference between an elder and a bishop. I'm not saying I'm a bishop, but I'm an elder. And I think passages like this are helpful to yeah. kind of come back and see, oh, this is all describing the same role. And there's a third concept, and that is the idea of a shepherd. Here you have that. These men who are elders or pastors are supposed to be feeding the flock, watching out for wolves. Uh, that is the idea of the work of a shepherd. And they're called shepherds. Uh, for example, in 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 um, 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter, uh, Peter writes to the uh, elders. He as a as an elder also. Um, and, and you see the idea of the, the work of shepherds there tending the flock. Um, and that gets translated pastor in one place, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And a pastor, if you think of it, has to do with a pasture. It, it is the word that means shepherd elsewhere. But here's the point I want to make. So what we're saying is the same men in the this, this same work, same role, are referred to as elders, overseers, or shepherds. Uh, shepherds is a metaphor. It it, uh, it illustrates their work. Overseers is just a straight description of their work. Elders points to their age and their stature, their standing, but they're all referring to the same role, the same men in the same role. In the, and in the denominational world, that's not always the case. An elder is one thing, a bishop's another thing, a pastor's another thing. Here's what I wanted to say. In the denominational world, the, the theologians, the scholars, they know that their system of church organization and how they use these terms is not in accordance with the New Testament. They know that in the New Testament, these terms were used interchangeably. Um, Bishop Lightfoot, who was an Anglican Church of England, think, in the 1800s in his commentary on Philippians, where Paul starts out addressing himself to the saints at Philippi with the overseers and the servants. He takes time to go through and, and say, in the New Testament, these terms, elders, shepherds, overseers, were used interchangeably. Uh, I, I, you know I'm, I'm taking some coursework right now in, in, a, in a graduate program. Uh, we had a quiz, and, and one of the questions in the quiz, it was a uh, true-false question, and and the question was, are these three terms used interchangeably in the New Testament? Or they said they are used interchangeably in the New Testament, uh, meaning referring to the same men in the same roles, and it was true-false, and the correct answer was true, and that was at a Baptist university. Um, the point being, in the denominational world, they know these terms were used interchangeably. That's really not a point of contention. Everybody knows that. It's just in the denominational world, people do not feel compelled to look to the New Testament for our model of how we organize ourselves. I have a question. So one of the things that's always stood out to me is that the Jews, they had elders before Jesus' church you know, was established. Yeah. 
how much of the Jewish mindset of what their elders are like would have been moved over into what we see here? Because it's really interesting to me. We don't see elders just kind of show up in Acts 14. Paul comes back on that first preaching trip and he just starts appointing elders. And it's really, I think, helpful to kind of think about what the Jews especially would have had in mind with their elders there. So that's a legitimate question. I don't know if you want to take the time to talk about that. I, th I think a lot. Uh, think of the, the letter James, the epistle of James, which is, I often say, the most Jewish flavored book in the New Testament. And uh, you, you see things in the book of James, like uh, in James chapter 2, in verse 2, if there come into your synagogue a man mm -hmm. with a gold ring and so on, and you just look at the things that he discusses and you see uh, a, a reflection of what Jesus was talking about in, in engaging the Pharisees in, in the book of Matthew, and then, then you get over to James chapter 5, and in this very Jewish-flavored book where the, the vocabulary is very much what the Jews were used to, in verse 14, is any among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church. I think that his audience would have seen that as an allusion to something they were, in one form at least, familiar with in their synagogues. Okay, cool. I, I, I hadn't really thought through James. I just always assumed James 5 was referring to like shepherds in that local church, but you're saying it's probably referring to Jewish elders. Well, well, no, I'm I'm saying when he refers to in your synagogue in James chapter two, how do you take that? Uh, I've always taken it as like they're gathering, but so he's using he, a Jewish term to help. That's them. right. And so oh, I see. Is, okay, I see. What you're saying. They they could translate from their experience into their, their experience now in Christ, and they could make the connection. Okay, that's it, cool. guys. Yeah, maybe just to, to further that point, um, uh, just recently I was in a really interesting study in the book of Matthew. Uh, I wish you guys could have been there. But in Matthew 21 and in verse 23, uh, it says, Now when he came into the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people. And so you've, you've got that very idea of, of elders. You know, they, they were identified in that same terminology uh, in the time of Christ, you know, we can go all the way back to, uh, to Exodus and Numbers and see uh, the elders uh, being, you know, working amongst the people. But but even in the time of Christ, that was a very active thing for the for the Jewish population. Now, I, and and that's not to say that because of this connection that we can just then go back to rabbinical writings and whatever they say about elders holds true in the new testament church i think that would be an unwarranted conclusion the holy spirit uh certainly was at liberty to say here's what you need to consider when choosing an elder and it and it might or might not be exactly the same thing the jews were used to what i am saying though is i think you're right to think that this was not a foreign concept to jewish christians yeah and, and and the same thing with shepherds as well. Uh, yeah, Ezekiel 34 and other passages, uh, the, yes. the religious leaders would have seen themselves as shepherds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, going back to Acts chapter 20 then, where Paul is talking with these elders who are shepherds, who are overseers, um, he says in verse uh, 31, Wherefore, watch you, remembering that by the space of three years I cease not to admonish everyone night and day with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of 
his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all them that are sanctified. I coveted no man's silver or gold or peril. You yourselves know that these hands ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. It's interesting that Paul was not above, not he, he was not above working with his hands to provide for himself, but even to provide for his assistance. Um, he was willing to do that. Sometimes we get a very professional concept of, of the work of an evangelist. Well, how, how dare anybody think that I should have to earn my living some way? It's a blessing to be able to have the time where I'm, I'm not being distracted with secular work. It's a blessing to be able to, to devote myself to the work of preaching the gospel. But working with my hands to provide for myself and even others is not beneath me. I think that's something that... Mm -hmm we as evangelists need to keep in mind which, which of course yeah, like thinking all at once sorry go ahead, Jason. go ahead brother i was just going to say i think it's really impressive too because i think a lot of preachers would pat themselves on the back and say wow i'm supporting myself to, to get this work done but paul says I, I not only supported myself i supported other people with the work i was doing as well i mean that's the level of work he was doing so what I, work I was he doing cool. Probably making tents we like know he was he, doing back yeah. in Corinth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're going to say something too, Joe. Well, just a couple of points. One, we see that concept in the book of Nehemiah uh, that Nehemiah, instead of taking from the people, uh, he contributed, and also those who were with him. Uh, you know, his uh, assistance or whatever counsel um, he helped to provide for their needs. And that was the difference i mentioned ezekiel 34 earlier you know the 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 one of the responsibilities of the shepherds was to feed the flock not feed off of the flock mm -hmm. and, and that doesn't mean that they can't receive support but it means that they really ought to be geared toward helping instead of kind of being this upper tier echelon that then they're just receiving and, and kind of uh, getting everything. I just saw a video uh, yesterday or day before uh, of uh, uh, some pastor of a church and uh, the congregation had discovered um, that he had been taking the money and using it for all sorts of personal things. And basically the whole congregation got up and walked out on him. And it was kind of a fitting thing but it was just so sad um, that here he saw himself as a pastor. He could do whatever he wanted to with the with the money of the church, um, uh, and uh, that's just not what we see amongst the the New Testament pattern. Well, you, you do you do have this concept in the denominational people world. People will say to somebody who's a, a preacher or something, "Oh, do you have a church?" And what that reflects is the mentality that it's his church, and uh, and I guess sometimes they think of it, it's mine. And I can do with it as I please. In, in this very video, they had discovered that the that the pastor had put the church building in his own name, and so he owned the property. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell disturbing, you guys. And disturbing. so for 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 that reason, because there are so many. I mean, the word pastor is just such a religiously loaded word now. Uh, when people ask me what I do. It's hard because obviously I'm not a pastor in this sense, so I don't tell people that I'm a pastor. But even if I wanted to yield to maybe using some terminology they would be familiar with, when you say pastor, they just assume, well, you run the church. If you say preacher, then they limit your what in their head you do to just 
a pulpit. You, you have a pulpit that you talk out of. When you say the word evangelist, I'm an evangelist. Some people don't know what to do with that, and it kind of weirds them out. And so I've started telling people I'm a Bible teacher because in the in that name, it just kind of cuts straight through what I do. I teach the Bible. I teach it in the pulpit. I teach it in, in you know, classes. I teach it out there in the community. You know, I, I'm just a Bible teacher. And mm-hmm. so uh, it is sad that, that so many churches have all these terms all mixed up. And not only the terms, the concept. And, 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 yeah, thank you. And, and yeah, and, and, and that's exactly what we're reading in this text. Going back to verse 20, he taught. He, he was a teacher um, uh, and and he was speaking um you know as he's as he's teaching these men and uh the disciples in ephesus when he had been there he says i taught you in verse 20 publicly and from house to house i got two questions for you the first one may be hard uh publicly does that mean in the town square or in the marketplace or does that mean in their assemblies or do we know probably a little bit of all well, those. I, w- I, I wouldn't i wouldn't limit it to any one of those yeah, I, I would I would think that publicly is in contrast to house to house. And so whatever is not in house to house, but is house to house then where the churches were meeting? Uh, I don't know if that's further of your question. So so the second question is, whatever this means, and for what it's worth, I, I think the publicly here, just because of the vocabulary, probably means out in the in the forum in the in the marketplace in in that kind of thing but personally over the years and and i'm not looking for one answer or the other here i just want to hear what you guys think do you think your most effective teaching where you have accomplished the most has been in people's homes or in the pulpit People's homes. Uh, homes without a question. Yeah. I've, I've always felt the same way. And, and I'll tell you, I felt the same way to the degree that for many years, I really did not see my work in the pulpit as, as I did not see the value that there was in it. And for that reason, I probably didn't put as much effort into it as I should have. In recent years, I have really become convinced that we can do a lot of good in the pulpit on Sundays, but I still think probably I've done more good in just the small group studies that I've had with people through the years. And, and so I purposely answered the question that you asked. You, you, you said, where do we see the most good? And so I, I, think, the, I think it is easier to see good being done in a one-on-one study where if i'm standing before 30 or 40 or 50 people or whatever i may not see the fruit of that lesson bearing out yeah oh sorry jeff i wasn't mocking you when i did this sorry i just realized when i did that jeff was all but but when you're in a crowd of preaching why would you you think people like you were mocking me because <laughs> I saw you change your position when I did this. But the point I was making, I was hoping Joe would see me, is because in a crowd of people, and you just see, you know, 30 people doing this, it can be hard to gauge. All right, are you and of course people they sit like this and they're listening just like Jeff was in that case just then. But when you're on a one-on-one study, you know, you're seeing people's facial expressions, you're able to gauge the kind of growth 
just right then and there. And uh, so it's not at all that we're trying to diminish, you know, the kind of preaching that's done publicly. It's needed and necessary. I mean, clearly, Paul, when he was in Ephesus, he was in the school of Tyrannus. I think that's probably what he had in mind as well. His public teaching went. Yeah. And that, that was good. It was good stuff that was happening there. But I think Joe's right. Is We as preachers sometimes feel more connected with the one-on-one just because it, it, we can kind of see more growth in those areas. Yeah. All right. Um, we get down to verse 35 in Acts chapter 20. And Paul says, in all things, I gave you an example that so laboring you ought to help the weak. And to remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul has been talking with the elders. He's been giving them their marching orders. He's been setting himself up as an example. Look at what I do. Look at my work. Look at my efforts in teaching both publicly and from house to house. Um, look at my willingness to not covet other men's silver uh, or, or my not coveting other men's silver, my willingness to work to provide for those who are with me to, to have this attitude. It's more blessed to give than to receive. There's not a word here about being sure that you keep an eye on the bank account of the church. There's not a word here about being sure that you see to it the parking lot gets paved. You, there, there are a lot of things elders may have their, their fingers in, but when you look at the primary focus of the work of elders, you get a different picture here than you do when you look at elderships in some congregations where the eldership doesn't seem to be very focused on spiritual things, seems pretty much focused on organizational and even business administration kind of things. Administrate, yeah, a lot of it's on administration because sometimes they'll see, oh, well, we need to be overseeing the spiritual nourishment of the church, but we'll do that by getting a preacher who does that, or right. we'll do that by getting some deacons who are now in charge of that. And that's not what you see. The, the shepherds are the ones doing the feeding, yeah. not outsourcing the job. Right. Yeah. Uh, hey guys, so where is Go ahead. Oh, wow. All three of us. On the count of three. Okay, I'll, I'll go. Uh, so this uh, quote of Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Is that like in a, in a lost chapter or something? What's, uh, <laughs> what's the deal with that? You know, every now and then, yeah, is that they they just came out? uh, They found a new copy of Matthew 12, didn't they, Jeff? Is it in there? (laughs) Okay, so the guy, people, what these two guys doing? They're 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 having fun with me because they heard me talk about. You may have seen. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you may have seen in news reports a couple weeks ago that there was a lost chapter of the Book of Matthew found. There was no lost chapter found it was it was uh, a manuscript that was found that had been written over which is not unusual a lot of times manuscripts got reused and this particular page happened to have originally been a copy of the syriac translation of the new testament for part of matthew chapter 11 and much of matthew chapter 12 Uh, but it got reported in the news media because it had been erased and written over with something else on the page as if it was a lost chapter of the book of Matthew that's now been found. And the news media played it up as if it was going to tell you something different. It was going to give you the real scoop that we don't have in our Bibles, which is not true. Um, so that's what they're having fun with. All right, guys, are you through with your fun now? <laughs> well, yes. not entirely. So so where did Jesus say this then? 
We don't have it recorded, do we? Not that I, no, not in these exact words. And I think, you know, so in my Bible, I have quotations around, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But perhaps those quotations shouldn't be there. And Paul is, or, and, and Paul is simply paraphrasing so much of what Jesus taught about our attitudes toward money and so forth. It's possible. It's also possible that there were things that at this time they they remembered or knew Jesus had said, which were not recorded in the Gospels. Right. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and, and it would be somewhat similar to some of the Beatitudes in the Gospel of Luke, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he spends some time talking about blessed are the poor and woe to the, the wealthy, to the, to the rich. And so the some of those concerns that there uh, may carry over um in in this quote here yeah by the way to our listeners if we have any live listeners who are just itching to hear more about that lost chapter of matthew you could induce me to talk more about it <laughs> all right let's move on before we get stuck on that um uh, verse 36 uh when he had thus spoken he kneeled down and prayed with them all and they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the word which he had spoken that they should behold his face no more. And they brought him on his way uh, under the ship. All right, so he's leaving Ephesus now. Anything we need to touch on before we go on into chapter 21? Well, I wonder if it would help to sort of recap the church in Ephesus, because this is kind of a, a very important uh, text regarding that church. And it may be, I guess, arguably the church that we know the most about of the first century. Would that, would that be an accurate statement? Probably close to them and Corinth would probably be the two that I, I would put up there on the list. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we, we have two longer books in Corinth, but, but we have so much about Ephesus beginning with uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and then Apollos, mm -hmm. and then Paul going there, then Paul talking to the Ephesian elders, and then mm -hmm. later on, Paul writing a letter to them, and then Jesus writing a letter to them in Revelation 2. Uh, am I leaving something out there? You know, it seems like we know oh, the span. Paul to Timothy. Uh, yeah, Paul yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you for, mm -hmm. for Timothy. Um, mm -hmm. And so we know quite a bit about probably a couple of generations of, uh, of that yes. congregation. It is interesting when you look at the beginning of the church in Ephesus, and then you trace all of that through that you just described, and you come to the book of Revelation, and obviously we're at a second generation, and it talks about having lost your first love. And um, it, while we may not understand all the details of the problem in the church at Ephesus by the time that we get to the book of Revelation, I think we can relate to that. We can see congregations that we knew of as very strong 30 years ago. Um, and you go back and it just, just looks like they've kind of lost something in some cases. And I think we can relate to that. Yeah, as far as the letter to the Ephesians, of course, you know, my, my take on it is that it is a letter for a larger audience and there are reasons that it gets... Um, comes down to us as to the, to the church at Ephesus. Um, but certainly they would have been included um, primary recipients um, amongst those to whom that letter was written. And so much of what Paul warns them about the, the elders, it seems as if they took heed to 
in according to Revelation 2. They would not tolerate false teaching right, right. Uh, and so forth. And yet, losing that first love, it's like they, they got the, the details right, but they forgot the motive of it, you know, the, that it is the church of God that he purchased with his own blood and, and those sorts of things. Um, they, they lost some of the zeal and fervor that Apollos had brought to that, uh, them early on, for, perhaps. Do we see that today where you have a church that has a, a history of having been sound, we might say, over decades, and yet it kind of looks like they've gotten to a point where they're just kind of, uh, they've got a list of doctrines that they're, they're not going to go down that path. They're not going to fall away in, in that way. And yet they don't seem to have a whole lot of zeal for either um, staying away from materialistic lifestyles or for reaching to the lost in the community. You, you sometimes see that. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about the, think about the, think about the Pharisees when Jesus came on the scene. I mean, the Old Testament prophets are constantly having to tell the Israelites to hang up the idols, quit. Why are you doing this? But by the time you get to the New Testament and Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees, that was something they had down pretty good is that they knew no graven images. We wouldn't serve or worship idols. And yet there were still these weightier matters that they were ignoring of justice and mercy. And so, yeah, I think you see it in that generation. You see it now. Good point. All right. Well, let's let's just get started into chapter 21. We have a few minutes yet here to go. We remember that Paul is in a hurry. In fact, he did not go to meet with the elders of the church at Ephesus. In Ephesus, he went on to Miletus and they came down and met him there. And it was because he did not want to get hung up uh, there in Asia and end up spending time. These Obviously, these people from Ephesus hold Paul uh, close to their hearts. He's dear to them. You can imagine if he'd gone into the city of Ephesus, he might have been compelled to stay longer than he needed to because he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. So let's move him along on his journey here. Chapter 21, verse 1, when you guys want to pick it up. After we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail straight from Kos the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted uh, Cyprus, Passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre, since the ship was to unload its cargo there. And we sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey, while all of them, with their wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship, and they returned home. So uh, again, you know, back in verse 23 of chapter 20, Paul had said, save that the Holy Spirit testifies unto me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Now here in chapter 21, the disciples come and they say to Paul through the Spirit that he should not set foot in Jerusalem. I don't think that means the Holy Spirit is saying don't set foot in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is saying, here's what awaits you. But if the Holy Spirit has been saying, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul would have been wrong to go to Jerusalem. I think what we have here is the brethren hearing what the Spirit's saying, that there's trouble that lies ahead in Jerusalem. Paul, why don't you just not go? That's the brethren saying that. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that we have that uh, that in agreement later on in verse 14. Um, we're going to have kind of a repetition of that mm -hmm. same uh, situation going on in the following text. And, you know, they're, 
it's the will of the, it's the will of the Lord um, right. that's going to take place. Paul's already said that he's bound by the Spirit uh, to to go there. So right, twenty twenty two. Right. Good. Good. Okay. Um, so then we come to uh, did we got all the way through verse six, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Verse seven. Um, and when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and were, we saluted the brethren, abode there, abode with them one day. And on the morrow we departed and came unto Caesarea and entering into the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we abode with him. Who is Philip the evangelist? Luke mentions him as if we should know him. Yeah, so yeah, he was, back in chapter what, six, remember those widows yeah. that were neglected? The apostles uh, had the congregation uh, select seven men to be in charge of making sure that they were taken care of. Um, uh, and so he was one of those seven men. And uh, then when that is taken care of, uh, the persecution arises and Philip ends up going uh, the road to Gaza with the Ethiopian and then on to Caesarea. Uh, we, we, see, we, we last see him in Caesarea at the end of chapter eight, right? And and then now that's where we find him now. It's possible right. he hasn't been there constantly, but it is interesting. This is some considerable years have passed. A decade has passed at, at the least. And um, he was in Caesarea and he's in Caesarea now. There are people who think that to be an evangelist, you have to be itinerant. You can't get, you can't stay in one place very long. We don't know whether he was here constantly or not, but at least he was in Caesarea back there in chapter eight and he's in Caesarea now. So. And, and we'd seen the same thing with, uh, with Luke in Philippi. Uh, he stayed there for an extended period of time. We saw that with Paul, he was in Ephesus for three years. Mm -hmm. um, right. uh, and so the idea that you have to uh, constantly keep your suitcase open uh, is, is just not found in the Bible. Right. He has some daughters uh, in verse nine. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Does it mean they prophesied? They're prophetesses. Uh, they spoke here. God's word. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they. I, I take it that they had received laying on of hands and they had this gift of prophecy. They spoke by direct revelation from God. The Spirit spoke to them, gave them what to speak. Uh, does this mean that they stood up in a pulpit on Sunday Sundays in the assembly? Uh, not at all. It doesn't say that at all, does it? No, it doesn't. When we get over to 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul is talking about con how one conducts oneself in the assembly with regard to spiritual gifts, and he talks about prophets along with those who speak in tongues, he specifically then says the, the women should keep silent, for it's not permitted to them to speak. It it's necessary that he say that because there were women who did speak in tongues and had the gift of prophecy, but he says not in the assembly, because in the assembly, a woman's not sp not to speak. Okay. And, All right. So, uh, if I might, I wonder if this would also uh, be a part of Joel's prophecy. We saw it beginning to be fulfilled in Acts 2. The part of that prophecy is your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And then he specifically mm -hmm. mentions uh, some of the daughters uh, prophesying here. Yeah. Um, to me, that's kind of interesting to, to put those two passages together. And before we get yeah. past this, if I might, one of the things that is astounding to me is that Paul is staying at Philip's house. Why would that be a, a surprise or, or a, an interesting thing? 
Well, of course, Stephen was one of the seven, and he was killed in Acts oh, seven and eight. I never thought about that. Yeah, I mean, to, to think about, you know, this guy had killed one of Philip's friends, you know, probably a close friend. You yeah. know, these seven worked together. Um, and now, yes, some years have passed, but you're letting this murderer come into your house and, yeah. uh, you know, you're showing hospitality. Um, what, what a beautiful act of, of, of forgiveness and fellowship. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Because you, we run into people today who who say, "Oh, yeah, you've got to forgive," but but I can't forgive in this situation because it so personally affected me. I was hurt deeply. You've got to understand how deeply I was hurt. Well, wow! Here is Philip receiving Paul into his house, who had killed Stephen. Yeah, I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned that. All right, well, guys, that we're that's going to do it. We're out of time, so we'll have to remember next week. We're going to pick it up at Acts chapter twenty-one and verse ten, and um, so good study today, and we'll make progress next week. And those of you listening to this webcast each week, we are thankful that you do that, and we hope to see you next week. Mm.